Hello, and welcome to Nonbreaking Space. Nonbreaking Space is a show where we seek out the best and brightest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Tan Kapila, two web designers and authors and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. Uh, usually, our producer, Chris Enns, is here, uh, and we invite him uh, along to push the buttons to make the podcast go. Our guest for this episode is Daniel Ryan. Daniel has been working on the web since 1997 and is currently consulting, working on open source projects, and speaking at various conferences. So, Sam, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? Doing great. Uh, thanks again for joining us for this, for this podcast. I love being here. Thank you. Cool. And I, I'm going to enjoy our, our talking to our guest today. It's uh, um, Daniel Ryan. So, hey, Daniel. Hey, how are you guys? Doing, doing great. Um, thanks for having me on today. Cool. Yeah, we're honored to have you here. Um, can you just tell our listeners a little bit uh, about you and, and how you got into the web? Because you sure. says in 1997, that's when you got into the web, but what made you, yeah. how'd you get here? So I, I think the first time I remember being online was at a friend's house, uh, my junior year of high school. We got on AOL to look at the David Letterman top 10 list that wasn't used that night. Uh, they used to put those up on AOL. And we must have spent 10 bucks downloading it because it took forever. <laughs> but it was like this mind-opening thing that like we have this place now to share data. And got really excited, got into it. At, owned a computer at that point, obviously with no internet access. Got my own access about a year later when I graduated high school. Didn't do much with the web the first year or two. Uh, I, I didn't go to college right away after high school. I decided I wanted to figure out what I want to do in my life. And what I did immediately was manage punk bands in Central Florida. Oh, nice. And that sort of evolved into living with a bunch of dudes in Central <laughs> Florida, one of which was learning how to do programming at college. And I had done desktop publishing, as we used to call it back then, okay. All right, for well, a while. I, I, and, uh, I have to interrupt sorry. you for a second. Yeah. What punk bands did you manage? The only ones that are – well, the only one that is still around – uh, is a band called Amberlynn, and they used to be under a name called Saga, and I was their first manager in 96. Okay. And then I worked with a bunch of other bands that have since gone away. Okay. But, yeah, no wow. one you've ever heard of. Yeah, well, yeah, that's awesome. So <laughs> I have to ask right out of the gate, like, uh, what, what, uh, what did you learn from managing punk bands? Like, like, what lessons did you learn from being a... That I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm not a phone person, so that didn't really work when you didn't have the internet to book shows and you had to do phone calls. Right. Um, I think I, what I learned a lot, though, was, and this comes around again and again in different parts of my life, is the grassroots, organizing with real people, connecting real people, hmm. getting them behind something and making that happen. And it's, it's funny, like I talked with some of the guys that I used to work with a few years ago. We were sitting around one night having drinks, reminiscing. We were 10 years too early. Like yeah. If we had, had MySpace or Facebook or any of that, like we could have blown up because we knew how to get people to connect to us, but you had to physically go to them to do it. Right. And there was no way to sort of build hype and get your music out. And we were trying to do all these things. We were giving away free tapes and free CDs when we were able to afford a CD burner years later. And, but that wasn't cost effective. Right? right? Like That was real money out of our pockets, and we all had craft jobs. Right. So that was what the, the internet brought us. Right. We... We, we built websites for these bands back when you couldn't afford a domain name, so no one knew how to find it. Okay. Google hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. And so we'd had like a list of our shows and all that, but no one was there. Right. Um, looking back, it's like if we could have had all of the tech we have now, then we would have been so much different than we are. 
but I think that was the biggest thing was just how to how to deal with people, especially mm -hmm. when you're on the road in a van and life sucks because you're broke and the venue didn't pay you last night. Mm -hmm. How do you get along with people in that scenario and, and how you connect with fans and get them involved? How do you deal with people when, when you're broke in a van and the gig didn't pay you last night? Like, do you just like... You uh, give each other space. Oh, yeah. just, just It's hard to do in a van, right? Yeah. But it's, it's all you can do. It's just right. when people get upset, they're going to be upset. Right. Try to make sure everybody's fed. That usually helps a little bit. Right. Um, yeah. Just give them the space that they need. Okay. Give and them then, space. Give them respect. Right? Yeah. Like that's all most people really want in life is to just be treated like they're a human being. Right. Amen to that. So um, you did mention like um, that you know how to hype um, and get people excited about I guess the show and stuff like that and connect. Yeah. Like, is there any, is that just like putting on the show or is that is that what you meant or is there something else? Yeah, I used to I put on shows when yeah. I finally did go to college. Yeah. I, I wanted to see all these bands I used to work with, so I started booking shows to bring them in. Mm -hmm. It was my little way of getting my friends to come see me when I was 800 miles away. Yeah. Uh, the, we used to do we at that point when I was in school around 2000. People were using the internet, but we still didn't have social networks, so there wasn't an easy way to broadcast a message like that. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we did that, that really killed was we did full-color uh, posters that were designed by graphic artists as opposed to like, these DIY, like Kinko's $5 things, mm -hmm. you know, $5 for 100 We were paying like $1, $2 a poster oh, wow. to have them printed, and then people actually collected them around campus, which was funny. But it made us stand out. When you have this bulletin board with a hundred posters on it, yeah. and you're the only one in color, yeah. um, and we'd always do like really cool photography or different kind of you know graphic, really made it pop. And we get those going, and then we always you always promoted the next show at the oh. one you're at. So if you actually get people to show up, you promote the next one, and that works pretty well. And we also one of the things I did a lot was get people to volunteer to work the shows. Mm -hmm. And so they would always then go spread the word too, because now they're involved. Okay. And you know, we'll get into at some point what my, my most previous job was with uh, President Obama's campaign. But that's one of the things we really learned there was when people give a dollar even, they feel invested. Mm -hmm. and it's, then they want to be a part of it. It's part of the family. They own it. Right. Um, that's like a thread I see throughout all these different weird things I've done that have nothing to do with what I do for a living now. But mm -hmm. Get people to get invested, and they will stick with you. Okay, cool. All right, and then so you went from managing punk, punk bands, yeah. Then went to college and managed books, I guess, uh, bands and book bands for, uh, I guess, for the student union, I guess, or entertainment. Separate. Uh, our student union didn't do that much, so okay. I just did it myself. Uh, okay. Often, I, could, I do it at the college sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. They had a venue; they would let students use every so often. So I would use my quota for the year, and then I have to go get a coffee shop or somewhere and do it. Okay. Cool. And then, then you know, on the on the way to the path of getting to the web, like what was the next step? So yeah, at that point, I'd, I'd learned web design. I started with this thing called PageMill, which was the oh, page maker for the the web. Mm -hmm. And I had that for about a month. And my roommate, who was learning JavaScript in college in 1998, which is kind of fascinating to me, <laughs> um, kept making fun of me that I couldn't actually code. No. And so I, I'm Irish and have a temper, so I learned how to open a pad and write code because I needed to be, you know, better than his insults. Yeah. Um, he's a fantastic guy. He's a good friend. He's gone on. He's he's worked at a bunch of magazines. He works at like uh, Transworld Skate Magazine stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now doing web for them and is really well well known in that industry. So he taught me, 
and that, that was it. I got into that, and I did it for the bands because we couldn't afford to hire anybody. And when I went off to college and got back into working with music again, same kind of thing, building bands for the, or building sites for the bands around the college, um, pushing their shows. At that point, we had MP3s. So we could put music online. We couldn't really afford it, but um, we were doing that and giving away music that way. And then eventually, I'm trying to remember which one came out first. One of the hosting services that let us put music on it so that we weren't paying bandwidth. And then that was when it kind of took off that you can just give away your music. Um, so that was the next step. Developed all through college, did some stuff for pay, not too much, it was mostly just doing school. Then I went off to grad school in Manchester, England, and England does these one year highly compressed master's degrees. So it's like a 51 week program and you do a, what would be a three year American program. So it was just a lot of reading and a lot of time in my flat by myself. And then the downtime that I had, because everyone in my program, the only people I knew in England really, were either working full time or were married and doing and also going to school. So they weren't gonna go out at night. So I dug into WordPress templates because I was running a WordPress website and I, we now call it front end. I, I knew how to do CSS and a little bit of JavaScript and HTML. I didn't know any server side stuff. So I learned PHP through hacking WordPress templates. Hmm. and got pretty big in that community. I had some, some themes that were being used by you know, tens of thousands of people at a time. Oh, nice. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day about sort of build systems, how all this works. And I can remember spending days getting MySQL to build on my Mac <laughs> so I could run WordPress locally. And now it's like I do brew install MySQL and I have MySQL installed. And you know, like, those were tough days. But we got, I learned a lot. Like, I, I learned a lot about how the systems work. So I got to become like a command line Unix geek and did that through the rest of grad school. Then I moved back here to Chattanooga, Tennessee. I grew up in central Florida, but I'd gone to college here. I loved the area, moved back here after grad school, was gonna get a job as a professor at the local university, and then funding got cut as the economy started going down. And I'm like, well, I know how to do this web design stuff. Maybe people will pay me for it. So that was seven years ago now that I started doing that full-time professionally, and it's done pretty well for me. And then, um, so you're working in Chattanooga, right? And yeah. you're doing consulting work for companies around there. And then, um, how, how did you get involved with the Obama campaign? So I applied for the campaign in 08. I was, had been following the president since he was a senator, gave the, the 04 convention speech. I applied in 08. I was a um, front-end manager at an agency here in Chattanooga. And I went and told the president of the company, I've applied to work for the Obama campaign, and if I get the job, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, not something you normally tell your boss that you've applied <laughs> for their job. But he was like, no, I get that. Like, you know, if, if you can do that, then you have to go do that. Mm-hmm. Had a few interviews with them. Nothing ever came of it. I, I learned this past year from my predecessor that my resume just got lost in the shuffle. Oh. I totally understood, because I had to deal wow. with 800 resumes. <laughs> so I, I learned how that happened real fast. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get the job in 08. Okay. And 2010 rolls around. DNC is doing a big rebrand right. for the midterms. They hit me up. We have some discussions. I wound up not taking that job for various reasons. But now I'm on this sort of list of people. And, and everybody talks about how the campaign did all this micro-targeting and crazy email targeting and social targeting. And that's how they got me. Oh, yeah. It was just an email one night that was hey, you applied in 08, if you want to apply again, or if you know people that want to apply, you know, here's the link, go give us your resume. So the next morning, I submitted my resume, and just, you know, why not? At this point, it was like 
kind of a different scenario. Like, I don't, my career is going really well. I don't need to go do this. I would like to go help if I can, but I'm not going to pursue it right. if, if they don't pursue me. Mm-hmm. About 30 minutes later, I got an email from Kyle Rush, who would become my deputy. And at that point, and I didn't know this, but he was the only developer at the campaign. <laughs> it was just in over his head. He's like, can we get on the phone today? <laughs> and uh, we got on the phone later that week, actually, and had my first interview. And about six weeks later, I was in Chicago starting on my first day. So what interview questions did Kyle have for you? You know, I, I don't remember. Yeah. We, we adapted some of them for the interview that we kept doing afterwards. Uh-huh. I remember distinctly, we got to this part where I was supposed to do some code exercises live, where they're going to watch me in a Google Doc. Yeah. And the other interviewer, it, like, prepped that we were going to start doing that. And Kyle's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And he's like, yeah, but we always do that. And he goes, right, we're not asking him to code for us. That's stupid. And like at that point, I guess my interview had gone well enough that Kyle was embarrassed by his questions he was asking me. Mm-hmm. So that was some of it. Um, most of it was, can you, you know, work without sleep for 12 months at a time? Can you, can, what can you do? And, like, and how do we handle mobile? That was a big question they had. And I've come from the responsive design background. Um, worked with Aaron Gustafson, who actually lives here in Chattanooga, on adaptive design, his book, mm-hmm. and a bunch of articles that came out in the early days of responsive design. So I had that background. I pitched them on that. They mm-hmm. really liked that idea. They were doing jQuery mobile, separate site templates, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But we knew we weren't going to have the budget to hire enough people to run a separate website. Yeah. Right? We had enough work to do. So responsive design, adaptive design, I'll leave it up to everybody to decide which one we actually did at the campaign. But one of those two approaches was what we went with. Okay. And that worked really well. And then mobile first was a big thing for us too. We had so many people that were on edge connections in the middle of Iowa or mm-hmm. you know, these rural parts of Ohio and they need to be able to interact with the campaign and give us data. Mm-hmm. So you have to make this work on a really bad connection and make it work well. So. so- how do you work without sleep for 12 months? You don't. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's this myth. Campaigns have this sort of ethos of, you know, everything is a resource and you burn it to the ground by election day. Right. If there's anything left after the election, like you've done something wrong. Right. And my friend Jason Kuna, she was our director of UX, put it this way in a talk. The previous campaigns had politicos and Kool-Aid drinkers. Like that's the two classes of people. You have professional people that do this for a living, and then you have a bunch of young, vibrant, excited volunteers. And the politicos just burn the Kool-Aid drinkers out. Okay. And if they leave in the middle, they leave in the middle. We'll get more. We have plenty of these people. Okay. We were one of the first campaigns, maybe the first campaign that had a third set of people that was the skilled technician set. Mm. And we had all these people that were developers and designers and UX and data analysts, and they came in and were like, no, we do this for a living, and like, like we have to have a career after this too. Right. Like, we can't just burn out and not ever do this again when right. we're done. So it was one of the, the hardest things for me as a manager was trying to make sure that my team had a balanced life as much as we could. Mm-hmm. So it was things like when the campaign went to six days a week during the summer of 2012, I re-rotated Saturdays okay. so that we didn't have the entire team in. And then we went to seven days a week and we did the same thing until people noticed and were like, no, everyone has to be here every day because you know, 
there was this concept too that if you weren't in the office, you weren't working, which right. was true of some groups of people at the campaign. Right. That's what they were used to. If they weren't in the office, they weren't working. We worked all the time. It's who we are. We're developers. We're crazy. We stay up all night. Right. We actually looked, and no one seemed to understand what I was saying, but we had graphs from GitHub that our lines of code per developer went down when we went to seven days a week than when we were at five. Right. We were putting out less work because people were tired. Mm-hmm. But we worked hard to try to make that work. We instituted a policy that was called out by eight. So every Monday night we had our team meeting setting out the agenda for the week. And when that was over eight o'clock, everybody went home, no exceptions. And then we rotated everybody out one other night a week. The idea being you go out and have dinner, see some friends, whatever. Uh, That quickly turned into end by noon because you couldn't pay your bills or do laundry at nine o'clock at night when you got home. Uh Everything was closed. So we let people come in late, rotated like that. Um, Me personally, like, I didn't get to do that. I was the, the director, right? So I did 72 days straight in the office at the end. Mm. Wow. Um, I never actually slept in the office, which I was stunned by. I always assumed I would at some point, and I managed to get all the way through without ever sleeping in there. But that was tough. It was really tough. I mean, it took me so did you sleep in someone else's office? No, I never slept at the headquarters. Okay. <laughs> but I got an apartment right down the street from oh, okay. Okay. headquarters on purpose so I could always get home. Okay. You know? I just have visions of you like ordering, like, Replacement clothes on Amazon for being seventy-two days straight or something like that. So, yes. No, I definitely ordered clothes online because I had no time to go shop. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah, and just had them sent to the office. Nice. <laughs> like, yeah, we we had a lot of things shipped to Amazon or by Amazon to the office so that we could actually have things because you couldn't go shop. I mean, people started having their dog food sent to the office. Oh, nice. Because okay. they had dogs at home and had no time to go buy dog food. So, cool. so uh, how how large was the the team that you worked with? So not to get too obtuse with this, because the campaign structure was a little weird to outsiders to look at, but the digital department, which was what my team was a part of, was 250 people plus interns. My team, which was the front end team, was 25 people plus as many as six interns at a time. I think we had 15 interns over the course of the campaign. Um, That was my group. And there was also a technology department that was separate, and they did back-end infrastructure and data analytics and IT, like traditional IT, like phones and actual hardware. And there were 40 back-end engineers on that side. So somewhere with project managers and designers, front-end developers and back-end developers, there was like 120-ish people that worked on the web properties, like directly. Then we had content writers and social media experts and email writers and advertisers and an entire team of web analytics people uh, a video crew that I've never seen one that size. It was like 40 different people that were editors and camera people. It was one of the biggest editing rooms I've ever seen. Oh, wow. um, we churned out, I can't remember how many hours of video it was. It was insane. Um, by the end, we had two full-time photographers plus a few stringers that we'd pick up yeah. producing content for the website. So yeah, it was a pretty major Undertaking. I mean, you look back eight years ago, and the digital department in 2012 was bigger than the campaigns of, of 2004. Hmm. So that's amazing. Yeah. So like we, yeah. sorry, we had about 800 people in the office in Chicago total, and I want to say 3,000 paid nationally, because oh. we had people in 12, 14 states on the ground, and we worked with all of them. So like. 
there were people in the field, as we called it, like out on the in the actual states that were doing digital work and web work, and they we would work with them. So we were there to support them. So if they needed something built, they'd tell us, or if they wanted to build something and couldn't quite get over the line, we'd come in and help out. Um, we also had a, an office in San Francisco that was all volunteer developers that I can't remember how many, it was over 100 people that had filled an hour at least coming in there and hacking on code that we needed. That's, I couldn't even imagine that many people. It's really hard to even remember. Like it's it's <laughs> yeah. so like not real because it was so massive. Right. Yeah, I'm never going to complain about teaching 20 students at a time again. <laughs> well, that was my thing as a manager. Like I couldn't manage all 25 people on my team directly. That was insane. So I had a deputy, Kyle Rush, who ran the fundraising arm of my team, mm -hmm. and then two lead developers, Jeff Loudon and Michael Renahan, who ran persuasion and get out the vote, mm -hmm. uh, which is, that's the three things a campaign does. They ran those parts of the team, and basically it was the three of the three of them and myself, and then Jason Rico, who was our web producer. He was our first web producer. It was our senior web producer by the end because we had several of those, and it was just a lot of me and those four guys hammering out what was going on. And then if the anybody on the team had a problem they couldn't solve or a bug they couldn't fix, whatever they can always come to me. But the actual management stuff was definitely a, a hierarchy. So, so there was like, so you came on board. Uh, Kyle Rush was a deputy, and then you became a deputy right away. Or, or we had a different structure at the beginning. Kyle and I were both senior developers, okay. and there was a third developer who had gotten hired after me, but started before me because he lived in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then when we decided to change the structure of the team and split it into three groups that were focused on tasks. Mm -hmm. I laid out the whole structure for that and was writing the job description for what the director would be. And I look at Kyle, I'm like, I don't know what to put down other than what I do every day. Mm. And he was like, well, no, yeah, this is your job. Like, this is what you should be doing. Mm. So everybody agreed. And so it was a title change. I don't really know that it changed what I was doing. But then we went from five people when we relaunched the responsive site in November of 2011 to 12 people by January and then the 22 by the summer. So we grew pretty quickly. So for responsive design, like, do, do you like any impressions from switching to responsive, like in terms of site stats, traffic, or? Yeah. Uh, so th when I got there, the mobile traffic was ten percent of the overall traffic, maybe slightly less than that, mm -hmm. and we were getting no money on mobile, mm -hmm. which was an interesting stat because at that point I think it was something like twenty-five percent of all the emails were getting opened on a cell phone. We could tell that, but we weren't making any money from cell phones. So it was like, we have to fix this. And so we, we looked at the different methods with like separate templates and responsive design. We were responsive, as I mentioned earlier, for staffing considerations. Uh -huh. And I actually was more comfortable with that. By the end of the campaign, our mobile traffic was a third of our overall traffic. Mm -hmm. And our income on mobile was a third of the overall money. Like that number had actually caught up to be on par with the traffic. And our email opening was something like 50%. So mobile is, when you tell you like money comes from mobile, 30%, is that like yeah. I'm surfing on an iPhone and I decided to give you money through the web page iPhone or is it through like I'm, I bring an email and then I go to the web page or is that, is that there's, there's you would open, well, you could either come in organically and donate. Okay. But most of the, most everything we had traffic wise was, 
driven by email. So yeah. you get an email asking for money, and then you would click a link and go fill out the donation form. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. And was, was this before or after they had the uh, mobile app where you could also donate? But the mobile app donate went out to the web page. Okay. We couldn't, we couldn't take donations without Apple taking a cut. Okay. Got it. So we just went with. I think Android. You could take donate. You could donate directly in. I don't. I didn't use the Android one too much. Mm-hmm. The the iPhone one though. We decided early on. I remember this. One of the first meetings I was in that was really big was called Mobile Strategy, and there was like sixty five people in the room, <laughs> figuring out. And we decided that our mobile app shouldn't be everything. It certainly shouldn't replicate the website. It, the mobile app was really about on-the-ground volunteers, so it had a little bit of news so you could see what was going on with the campaign. It had uh, talking points, basically, and then it had where you could go door-to-door and knock on doors and do canvassing for us, and you could also make phone calls and call your friends and get credit for it. So it was really about like what could you do with a phone as opposed to here's the website and an app. Uh, but there was definitely a donate button, and it just kicked you out to the regular website. Okay. So like so definitely the donate page was like doing the heavy lifting and yeah. 3% really big number on its own. And you think about like what you actually like the campaign hauled in if I could use that phrase. Uh, that's actually I think it's a really, fair phrase to yeah, use. Yeah, that's a big number. So uh, pretty pretty awesome. And you know that's um, in uh, you know you mentioned the iOS Apple would take uh, their 30% of the cut so you went funnel fall into one donation page. I guess is is that right? There's only one donation page and then if one so, from the app, but we would make every email got at least one. And then for testing, we'd make multiple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to say it was something like 2000 donation pages we made over wow. the course of the campaign. Is, is that uh, like 2000 individual live, pages? Yeah, they're live at the same time and people would go to them or they would just be one page that would, we're talking about 2000 iterations of that one page or. So we'd make a page that was specific to a topic we were talking about an email or right. something that was going on and point people to that. Okay. We'd do different design tests. Okay. Right. So there was there was always more than one live at a time. Okay. Oh, nice. And so, but yeah, so that, that leads me to the next point about just that donation donation page. And I read an article about like how that developed over time. And yeah. And so, how did you? I mean, you're, you're sending emails constantly. I mean, I think that was a little bit of a joke <laughs> of the campaign about how many emails uh, people got. But yeah, for sure. uh, it wasn't a joke, you know. Once the final number <laughs> came in, it worked. Uh, yeah, it's like, well, the reason why they're doing that is it worked. I always tell people, I understand what you're talking about because for every one you got, I got eight samples. I totally get it. <laughs> I got eight times more than you did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, the the email traffic externally to the campaign was unreal. Also, internally working there, I had a half a million emails in 2012 alone. Oh wow! Like just internal emails. So. Th- mind-boggling how much email we sent both in and outside of the campaign yeah, yeah it, it clearly worked like we toby Falsgraf, who was the head of the email team he and i would sit and talk about these kind of things and we assumed at some point we would get to this threshold in which if they sent one more email in a day people would start unsubscribing we'd actually lose money right and uh, amelia Schultz, who ran the analytics team you know, try to predict a number at which we would get to, and we kept breaking that number. And we actually never got there. We never got to a point where sending one more email that day mm-hmm. made us less money than if we didn't send it. Oh, wow. Okay. And one of the funniest stories is we accidentally sent the same email twice in one day, and it made more money the second time around. Oh, wow. We have no idea. I mean, it just, you know, time of day matters. Yeah. 
um, somebody hit the button on the wrong email and then reset the one they'd already sent, and it, it made more money the second time around. Oh, so, in, you know, interesting stuff. Great. So I, there's, there has to be a threshold at which you annoy people and they go away. Mm-hmm. We never hit that, and I think it was just the, our supporters understood what was at stake. Okay. Um, maybe. Or they just weren't reading it and didn't care. Either one of the two. And how would you go about um, testing pages? I know there's some mention of like A/B testing, but uh, how would you, you know, is, is that was that part of the process, or was that the only part? Sure. Or? So we did a couple of ways. We had Optimizely, which is a, a service for A/B testing mm-hmm. that was actually started by somebody from the 08 campaign to oh. solve the problem that they didn't have the right tools for this. Oh, wow. So that was a great tool for us because it was specifically designed for our needs, and we had an open phone line to them whenever we had a problem, <laughs> which was great, which yeah. we kind of had with anybody we used, which was also a very strange thing. Yeah. But that was a great tool. Um, it does multivariate A-B testing, does it really well, it's pretty simple, gives you good stats on what happened. You can track as many metrics as you can think of because it has sort of custom events like Google Analytics does. You can trigger all kinds of data in your test. We would also actually segment the emails and send have the email go to different pages. So this group of people goes to this page, this one goes to this page. The email testing was generally about language, what subject lines work, what message content works, what calls to action work. Mm-hmm. And then the pages themselves, we would test messaging on some. We got to the point where we, like the messaging on the page didn't matter too much. You'd already read the message. Mm-hmm. And we were just working on design and reducing errors and getting you through faster. So we would use Optimizely to, to split traffic on that. And then we would always go back and verify that the data it was telling us was correct. So if it said we had raised you know $10,000 on this variant, we would go back the next day when we could pull that data out and make sure those numbers were lining up. And then the, the other thing is also about speed, right, and performance? Speed was a huge one for us. Yeah. And it's one of those things like you know as a developer that like that matters. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite parts of the campaign was having all, the, all these ideas that we've had for years, all, all the people on the team, and actually getting to see them play out, like now I have proof. Huh. And at the same time, having ideas you've had for all these years that turn out to be totally wrong, okay. but now you know, and so you can learn from that. And the, the one with the speed that was really interesting was we switched from a donate page system that was PHP, MySQL back, so every page load is looking up uh-huh. a database hit, and like what the, what's the content of this page, et cetera, et cetera. We switched over to a Jekyll-based system, so it's a static website, and we put it on an S3 bucket, uh, Amazon S3 bucket. So there's like no moving parts, basically, right? It's a right. finished page. So the first test we did, because we're you know, very keen data people, was we take the page on our vendor and the page on S3 that's just a copy of the same output. Right. So view, source, copy, and paste. Just see if the infrastructure impacts donations because right. if it's negative we have to we can't do the system we have to bail and we made 10 percent more revenue just because the page was faster because it shaved about two seconds off the paint time mm-hmm. to go to a finished page on amazon and instantly we're, we're up 10 percent money right so that was became sort of the new baseline like this is now you have to improve upon this sort of revenue stream right. and 10 percent is like uh, a good you know eye-opener thing, but was your, were you looking at just one day's worth of data or just one test or multiple We didn't tests? do it. We did it multiple times to be okay. sure. Okay. We never did stuff by time. Okay. We always did it by statistical significance, which generally for us meant 
every test needed um, 10,000 views oh, wow. and needed 1,000 conversions per variant. And the more variants you had, the more overall views we, we would require. Okay. Um, and for us, because we had insane traffic, uh -huh. you could run through multiple ones of those in a day. Right. Okay. Um, the, the busiest night I remember was the president's speech at the convention, uh -huh. and we ran 16 A-B tests back to back after the speech was over. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, before we went home that night. So and We so could have ran more. We just actually ran out of ideas. We'd been prepping on those <laughs> variants for like a week and a half, knowing that was going to be a big night, and then they burned through so fast. It was like, well, okay, anybody want to try anything? Can we try anything? <laughs> and, I got the kitchen sink here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did. We tested it. You know, we tested constantly all the time, everything we could think of. Okay. So, so, and, and oh. took suggestions from the outside as much as we could on that stuff too. Oh wow! Wow. So, and what do you mean by that exactly? Like, who did you reach out to, or or did people reach out to you? And yeah, we had advisory committees that helped us out. There was a group called Tech for Obama that was a bunch of sort of Silicon Valley uh, names, people you would know mm -hmm. that were available for us to email or phone call. They came out once, did a big day-long summit with us. Mm. And everything from office culture and how we made people work and workflow to actual things like how do we improve the SEO of our pages? How do we improve these test results that we're getting? What are some new ideas to try? Uh, one of the big things that helped us too at the end when we were all worn out was we had a lot of people from the 08 campaign that came back and volunteered for like a month because they could take a month off work, do a leave of absence and come back. And then even some people from uh, Twitter and Facebook and other places out in, Cal in Silicon Valley, California, took anywhere from a month to three months leave of absence and came out and helped us. And like that was like fresh blood, right? Like they have all these ideas and they're super excited and they've slept in the last year. So... <laughs> We would just sort of like let them go, and they would send us all these ideas, and we would test all the ones we hadn't tested before. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you mentioned the repeat testing. You're probably referring to the story that I was telling the other day at the talk you were at that was uh, the red button test. Mm -hmm. So there was this common knowledge when I arrived at the campaign that a red button on a form converted better. And that just didn't make any sense to Kyle or I. Like, why would a color that says stop in every language around the world <laughs> make you want to click it? So eventually, like, after I'd been there a bit and sort of got my feet under me and, and knew where I stood everybody, I started asking, like, so where is that test? Like, when did we run that test? Where's the data? And then no one had it because there had never been a system to sort of pass this stuff down from campaign to campaign. Mm -hmm. And... So eventually it was like, okay, well, then we have to declare that that's no longer true and we're going to test it and see. Right. And then and inevitably somebody else would come in a month later, they'd get hired. They had worked on the campaign before, the DNC before, and red was the color you have to do red. Right. So we'd test this over and over again. So we tested this button color thing probably once a month, sometimes more than once a month, <laughs> just to see. And it never made a difference. Yeah, never made It was always the same. We'd test four or five different colors. They'd all come out the same. Okay. But eventually, it actually did make a difference. So, oh, like, okay, so like, it, so it didn't, but now it does. Like, what right? The, 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 like, by the end of the summer, when most of the country has realized there's an election going on and are paying attention finally, mm -hmm. we you spend like two years doing a campaign, and the first eighteen months of it, no one knows you're doing it. Yeah, no one cares. Like, that's, that, mm -hmm. No one cares, and I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's hardcore supporters that are paying attention, right? So the hardcore supporters don't care what color the button is. 
but we started getting into regular people as the summer and the, the fall came on. We were running these tests over and over again and noticed that, well, indeed, any color works except red. And so red became the thing that was decreasing conversions. And we, at that point, the designers were so thrilled because it's like, we can use anything we want. <laughs> you know? And we did, we changed colors on a bunch of stuff and actually saw it go up. We went with the green buttons for donate buttons and my God, it made money because green means go. Yeah. yeah, so that was interesting. Uh, we tested a lot of that stuff over, over and over again. And we would, we would do some tests that we would run for 30 days. Mm -hmm mostly to make sure that the data didn't change over time, right? So like, are we getting bad data because we're only doing early samples, like early adopters basically, right. we're doing these 10,000, the first 10,000. And we, so we would run these like sort of longer tests to just validate that the findings were correct. And I don't think we ever found one where the, the early data yeah. was reversed over time. Well, that's awesome that you actually you know, d d double check your results. So how would you perform a test or how does one perform a test that's like a month long versus, you know, say like, hey, I'll send 10,000 emails and then see right. what I get back. We'd have to pick something that was like these, the, what we call the core donate page, the one if you just went to the website and clicked the donate button, we yeah. could test there because it would get a lot of organic traffic hmm. over time. Um, we could test things on the store because the store got traffic over and over again, uh -huh. like our, our merchandise stuff. And things like our volunteer sign-up form, which didn't really change. I mean, we, we changed it as we tested, but it was we would use the same one a lot. Yeah. Uh, we would could we do run long-term tests on that, and we could run tests on nav, uh, color schemes, things that were global to the site. We could run over time. Okay. And so you'd have A/B testing on the navigation, right? Right? We never actually did A/B test on the nav itself. We just did A/B on the colors of okay. the nav. Um, when we re overhauled our nav, based on one of those summits where they came out, like, all the people from Silicon Valley came out and talked to us, and we had this you know, sort of typical nav horizontal bar, oh. bunch of links in it, with a bunch of stuff no one understood what it was. Like sort of like a suckerfish, what we call like, or I don't know, what you, like hover. No, because it didn't have drop downs. Yeah, it was just. Everything had to be top level, right? Because okay. every department's important. Exactly. And everyone has to have their say on the homepage. Mm -hmm. And so you had all these links up there, and no one's clicking them. Like the most clicked thing we had in the nav was blog, and the homepage was the blog. Mm. So it's like we're not driving people where we want to drive them. Right. And my team had been saying this for months. We, we had all the data, we'd looked at it. Actually, the initial nav we pitched when we did the redesign was this, the nav we wound up with at the end of the campaign, yeah. which was break it down by what people are, like what they are doing with the campaign. So we had a section for people that were new and didn't know anything and wanted to like learn who we were. Right. People that were seriously involved, like doing 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week volunteering. And then a section for people that wanted to volunteer or were sort of new at volunteering, yeah. some like light level, quick stuff you could do. And then a, a big donate button, because wow. we always had to have that. But of course. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we do. Um, so, and that performs so much better. Like every link there, which are now buried by the way, because now we've gone to a two level, like drop down nav. Right. All the links went up in clicks. Right. Some of them went up 300%. Right. And it was just, because now people understand like there's context, right? right? 
yeah, like I, now I understand what the word issues means because it's listed under get the facts. And then we actually list the issues of economy, um, college, all these things so that people are like instantly are like, okay, and now I know what you're talking about. I didn't know what issues meant when it's sitting next to video. Mm-hmm. Like, does it mean that I have a problem with the president? I need to click this and report it. Like what's going on here? Is it a bug tracker? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that was, it, it was interesting to see that shift and that we just tested by running a couple of weeks worth of Google analytics data. So, so you basically just made it simple, navigation simpler. And so that, that meant that people had to click more to get to their content, and that was okay? I actually say we made it more complicated. All right. But we, the complication visually was brought in context, and so the context was easier to grasp. Because the, the first nav was 11 links across a bar. Right. It's all there. But you didn't necessarily know what those things were or what they meant or how they interacted with you. And by adding the drop-down and sort of decluttering it visually and then giving you the context, it just worked. People got it, and they went where they, they not only went where they wanted to go; they went where we wanted them to go, which was great. And then you know, you couple that with you know navigation tests you did, um, and then you moved to like Amazon services for is it, I guess that was for speed issue, right? So you speed up. So you kept on making these finer tweaks as you went on, right? Is that and then um, and you look at the data, made tweaks going further. Um, and I was looking through some of the notes for their campaign. It's like uh, the the campaign just used like any sorts of technology that yeah. there's like Jekyll, Mustache, uh, JS. Uh, I don't know. Flask, Python, Django, yeah, Ruby, was like, was Rails, in there in PHP, the Magento. Yeah, I was like, well, like yeah, Expression yeah. Engine. And and so as someone who's managing, you know, there's uh, you know part of this technology campaign, like. How did that work? Because that's like you, you go into a an agency or a you know a creative agency suite or whatever, like and they're like, "We are an expression engine shop, or we are a Drupal shop, or whatnot." And then sure. you come in here, and it's like we're like an eighteen month organization, and anything right. flies, you know. That's, yeah. So how, like I can, I guess that's where the no sleep comes in. Or, yeah. Know. Well, I think my team actually benefited from that in that as front end developers. We were doing CSS and JavaScript mostly. Mm-hmm. We didn't particularly care what the backend infrastructure was, as long as we could write templates in it. Okay. And somebody on the team could figure out templates for all of those systems. Okay. I actually wrote a lot of Django code myself for the campaign. Um, we didn't matter how many people we hired, we would have never had enough. So I'd stay up at night writing apps that we needed to have that were sort of low priority, but we needed to have them by the end. So the people that that impacted the most was. DevOps are people doing all our deploys. And basically, once we figured out how to deploy a Django app, how to deploy a Flask app, and a Rails app, and a PHP app, there was a boilerplate in GitHub. And as long as you got your environment settings working with that system, you could just ship code to DevOps and they would deploy it. Okay. Um, that got really quick. And we got where we could launch a new Django app in like three hours oh, that wow. had never wow. seen a server before. And we automated as much of that as we could. And you know, we had three DevOps people deploying all this code for what the seventy-five of us who were developing. Uh-huh. So it's kind of an insane ratio and in how efficient they were with what they did. And then one one guy, Ben Hagen, doing security for all this, doing code review on for security holes. Uh-huh. Uh, famously, would play Kenny Loggins and put up an otter GIF if he found a bug in our code, so he did not <laughs> hear Kenny Loggins come over this, the loudspeakers. <laughs> uh, it meant someone was about to get in trouble. Oh, nice. 
Although Ben's the sweetest guy in the world, so he's the only person that can tell you you just screwed over the president with a smile on his face and you feel okay about it, right? <laughs> you just exposed us to the massive, most massive data hole ever. Yeah. Um, here's some Kenny Loggins. Okay. Yeah, but here's Kenny Loggins <laughs> and an otter, so it's going to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had a, you know, we really did have a, a, a pretty fun environment, mm-hmm. as hectic as it was. We had a Nerf guns and crazy food and took care of each other all the time and mm-hmm. You know, as long as it was after five o'clock, we would drink in the office. Secret Service told me one day they'd never seen more bottles of the campaign than us, <laughs> which is probably true. My desk had a full bar at it, so oh, wow. we'd assembled over time. And we went through it all on election day. Nice. But the, the multiple environment thing, it was mostly we need to get this stuff out quickly. And if there's someone here who knows how to get it out quickly in a language that we know how to deploy, mm-hmm. great. Nice. Because most of those apps, we had 250 GitHub repos. Mm-hmm. I'd wow. say probably half of those, maybe more, were done in the last six months of the campaign. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's like it has to get up and run, and it really only needs to run for 24 hours, probably. Oh, and wow. if it can stay up for that one 24 hour period that just happens to be November 6th, mm-hmm. then I really don't care if it falls apart the next day. Right. So, so by, so by a lot of it was written that way. So by 24 hours, like it would, it would fall under the weight of uh, you know people you know hitting it or. Like, if it, it could stay up on the traffic of election day, which was going to be the biggest traffic we had, okay. if it was if it was a critical piece, then we didn't care how it got there. Okay, it just had to do its job, and it couldn't fail. Okay, that was it. All right. And how important would you say GitHub was to the campaign? It's one of those things I don't even about it when any of us talk about the campaign because it was such, it's infrastructure, right? It's like water. It's like power. Yeah. You don't realize how much you use it. Yeah. But the, there's a really great video called how github uses github to build github Mm -hmm. that was how we trained our team on not only git because a lot of people had not used git before the campaign on my team but what the workflow was so doing pull requests and merging and issue tracking and we use github for issue tracking we use it for code review it was our source repository we use the GitHub hooks to do automated testing with like Jenkins and on those kind of apps. Uh, automated deployments through a thing called Cosby. I don't know if that's an, I never actually learned if Cosby was an outside project or an inside project. It might be an inside thing that we built. Just like Cosby himself, he just shows up, man. He just, okay. he's there, there's a sweater, everything's good. Yeah, it's good when Cosby's around. There's Jello. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's all kinds of things. Yeah. So GitHub was like integral. Yeah. And I remember early on, you know, they do the Friday Octocat. They put out a new Octocat like every Friday, I think it is, or every other Friday, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they put out a Yes We Code Octocat in like the style of the 08 Hope poster. Yeah. And we were like so excited that we went and made a bunch of buttons. Was, <laughs> uh, I commit change, oh. things like that. And we <laughs> sent a, a crew of them out to the GitHub folks and had a bunch for ourselves. And, and all like, the buttons were red? No, they were not red. <laughs> no, when we made buttons, we got to do whatever we wanted. And I don't think very many of them were ever red. Um, and it's the same thing with blue. I could really go the rest of my life now without a blue website. <laughs> it was it was a lot of blue. Um, I've actually forgotten the hex colors now, which is probably a good sign that I'm getting I'm getting on in my life. But, right. Yeah, GitHub is was like one of those things. It's like just critical. Um, so the features of like teams and organiz- like we were an organization, obviously, and then we had like teams of people. So right. if we needed to put another group of people on a project, it's like one click to right. it and they have permission. I, I love their idea, in, it's in that video of 
every service that your company uses should use GitHub as your login. Like that should be your identity. Nice. Um, a couple of the open source projects I'm working on right now actually center around GitHub, and GitHub is how you log in. Right. If you don't have a GitHub account, you're not using this product. Yeah. Because it's it's based on that. Yeah. So it's good stuff. Yeah. Although they did have a couple of outages that really drove us crazy. <laughs> I mean, not their fault. It happens. It was I think Rackspace went down a couple of times, like an hour or two. And you like when you watch seventy five people who can no longer deploy, who deploy about every ten minutes, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh my god, what are we gonna do? Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. Right. Well, so, just think that when someone makes a mistake over GitHub, they're playing, they're probably oh, playing yeah. Messina to your logins. Yes, totally. Yeah. yeah, they're great people. I actually got to meet uh, several of them after the campaign. Yeah. I was in San Francisco, and nicest people in the world. Yeah. They do. It's it's really cool to me how. Something that is that much just infrastructure has such a cachet of cool around it, yeah. and like really great people working at it. And like on the surface, it seems really boring. It's repositories for source code, but they've just ran with that and made it really awesome. And I, I, I love it to death. Uh, one quick question about GitHub is like for code review, would that just be like yeah. seeing the differences in code, or just like like you you check in the code and you would see the difference between the check ins? Or so we would do we do pull requests. Okay. And I don't know if you've used those on GitHub or not. Yeah. But it's sort of like a pre-merge, right? It's like asking permission to merge. Right. And it gives you the diffs and okay. the files that have been changed and all that. And then my favorite thing about that as a like code reviewer is you can do per-line comments. Yeah. So I would go down and just tick off, like, you know, this variable isn't in the right format for our coding style, or I think you're risking a comment here. Right. Whatever, like, stuff like that. And then... You just keep pushing towards the pull request till it gets clean, and then I click a button in the web face, or the web interface on my iPad while I'm in another meeting, and the code gets merged mm-hmm. and deploys. And like that, that's super awesome. Cool, awesome. Okay, I just know, like I knew, I knew it did those things. I just didn't know if that was like exactly what you meant. So that's cool, awesome. Yeah, pull requests are so cool. I actually have my own code now. Pull request to myself. <laughs> Seems silly, but it's like this really great habit to be in because yeah. then when you go collaborate, you're already in the, the habit of it. Right. But it's sort of like that last sanity check. Like, did the, did I actually only do the thing I think I did? Did mm-hmm. I do everything I think I did? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found out after the campaign, the DevOps guys knew this, but it, I didn't know this. That you can have uh, a GitHub interface to Jenkins, and it will actually run all of your tests and then tell you on the pull request if the tests are passed or not. Yeah. So. Um. This is like really simple, like thumbs up, thumbs down. Is this past test? I don't have to go run the test myself. Right. And when you're doing two dozen people's code and reviewing it, I didn't review all the code by a long shot, but like somebody was looking at all this code. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you have like passing stuff up. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So you have like 240 repos, and if you want to like launch 240 things, not yeah. that you did, but just like. You really need to automate testing, right? In order to yeah, you have to automate everything you can. Yeah, just like yeah, we automated testing, we automated deploys and building. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually done. I may get this wrong because this wasn't really my strong suit, but the way our deploys worked were everything ran on Ubuntu, and it the the build system would make a new like app to get package update that was the entire infrastructure that that app needed, and then the Build system with like Geppetto and Puppet would go tell all the boxes that were running that app. You, you have an update, and they'd go pull the whole thing down. Oh wow! And it wouldn't build if your test didn't pass. Oh, so like, you, and if it was 
tagged for staging, then it just went. Yeah. You didn't have to do anything. No one had to approve it. It was tagged for production. Mm-hmm. Then someone in DevOps had to manually click a button or type in a command that, like, this one's good, let it go. Okay. Yeah, it was a really cool system. Then we used Amazon for all that. So any of the critical apps, instead of replacing the code in place, we'd actually spin up new instances, put the new code on those, sanity check that they worked, and then switch them in the load balancers. Mm-hmm. So you had this sort of instant on change, nice. which was really cool to see when you're running that many servers that you can actually flip everything in like a second and have it work. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that is crazy. 18 months, man. Yes. <laughs> I do. I do want to talk about like you know you you have, you have a presentation uh, that you speak about is like human first design. Yes. And part of that you know part of that of course comes from you know lessons learned from the Bobble campaign and you know one of the things we you know, talked about the donate button page and stuff like that but one of the things I loved hearing about was that um, you wanted to pre-fill forms whenever possible and that's like yeah I just you know I find that so distracting like when when we. You know, I stick to Amazon to buy things just because I can log in. They know all my stuff. And when I have to, like, buy a third party or, like, not third party, but, like, a different vendor online, I have to fill out all these freaking forms. But, you know, one of your ideas right. was just to say, like, if you have someone's zip code, uh, just go and fill it out as much as you can because you know the city and you know the state already. Right. You, you, if you can get someone's zip code, you already know a lot about them, right? Right. And so filling out a zip code gives you city, state, and country on a shopping cart form. Yeah. That's three less fields for the person to screw up. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the campaign, we had tested so much design stuff, mm-hmm. and we got sort of this plateau where like design changes weren't really affecting anything anymore, mm-hmm. that we started working on reducing error rates per field. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we get the email field to have less error rates? Right. And this was like one of those ideas from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ziptastic is the the original project that we spotted mm-hmm. and liked, and because we're nice people and we didn't want to just start using an API that was being run for free as the Obama campaign and destroy the people's pocketbooks, <laughs> we wrote one ourselves that was the same idea, uh, and, oh and that would, it was one of those great things where like we just cut out a couple of points of error. Mm-hmm. You still let people edit it because your system may be wrong. Yeah. Um, like the zip code I live in can technically be one of three different towns. Right. It's mostly one, so you go to the one that it mostly is. But it might I might not identify that I live in Chattanooga. I may identify as Hickson, Tennessee, which is the next little town up. Yeah. And it's I live on the border of it. So, you know, you let people change it. Right. We fill that out for them. And also, like, if you've seen them before, fill it out for them. Why wouldn't you? You mm-hmm. know who they are. You've already got this much data. Yeah. And then the, the one-click, like, Facebook stuff. So... Right integrate with Facebook and then always give them an option to fill a form out with Facebook right. and go just grab all the data you need from there. Yeah. So like you said when something, uh, why is getting someone's Facebook more important than email in their email address? I was like, well, you get their email address if you get their Facebook login. So right. you've already covered that one. But mm-hmm. the, the big thing was we mapped the whole social graph of everyone who like authorized our app. Mm-hmm. So we could, match you to this thing called the voter file, which is basically a big CSV file database of every registered voter in the country mm-hmm. that gets put out by each state, and then you have to compile it because you know, no one does the same format. But, um, and it's like the voting history of America. So we, this is all public record stuff. You know who voted in what election, what party they were affiliated with when they voted, 
what district they were in, what their registered voter address was, public record stuff. So you can put that together, match it up with someone's Facebook profile, and now you've got a pretty good idea of like, because of who they're into on Facebook and what they talk about, you can infer with some really smart algorithms who they're going to vote for, how likely they are to vote, mm-hmm. and then are they a registered voter or not. So we, we do these huge drives on getting people to go register to vote because we knew they hadn't and we knew who they were on Facebook. So you can do that kind of data. And there's just such a world of this data that Facebook gives you that's the phrase that we kept throwing around the campaign over and over again. Um, myself and Anthea Watson Strong, who's now at Google, and Derek Brooks, who was one of the developers of the campaign, we went to the F8 conference with Facebook mm-hmm. during the campaign where they launched Timeline and Open Graph and all those things. Right. And I think it was Derek said awesome when we were watching the presentation, and I said creepy, and creepy awesome became the phrase. <laughs> Right, like you're at this sort of like cusp of at what point do you actually show your hand that you know so much about them that it becomes weird? Yeah. But uh, there's a all the way up to that point where you're just being helpful right. and you're getting out of their way and helping them do what they want to do. Yeah. And it's kind of this fine line of trying to decide which, like when you pass awesome to creepy. Um, we always tried to make sure that it didn't seem like we knew who you were we just knew who someone like you might be right and that's kind of a weird distinction but we like we would never show you what city we thought you were in we'd show you what state we knew you were in okay. even though we actually knew within a few blocks probably from our cdn where you were oh, wow. but we wouldn't fill that kind of stuff out we would just be like it looks like you're in tennessee so here's some stuff what's going on in tennessee oh, wow. okay. and people are used to that kind of thing okay like that's not too weird, but yeah. if we'd have been like, it looks like you're in, you know, the Lupton City Voting District of Chattanooga, yeah. and that's that's too much because then it's like you know who I am versus you know where I'm at. Like you know, we would see these things. The HTML5 geolocation API when it pops up the little bar and asks you if you if you know, allow your location to this website. Mm-hmm. In Chrome, the wording is absolutely awful. <laughs> It would say barackobama.com wants to track your physical location. Nice. And the number of phone calls we got at headquarters of people thinking we had hacked their computers. Yeah. I mean, it's in the hundreds. Yeah. And just like, all right, so we're killing that feature. <laughs> like, at least in Chrome, we're just not going to do automated lookup because we can't take any more phone calls about this. This is too weird. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Yeah. You want that story getting out. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Cool. And then, um, so you have like uh, 240 repos. Like there's a slide that you have in your presentation, which we'll link yeah. to it in the show notes. But it's uh, planning to vote. And this is, like, blew my brain <laughs> completely because it, it was like sort of like a game day game plan, right? That was like, of course, it was game plan for game day. But yeah. uh, the thing that blew my mind was like you, uh, it crossed, you know, you, you we're talking about responsive design. We're talking about performance issues for the web. But you had technology that, that crossed uh, from web to email uh, yeah. to CMS to texting to phone. So they actually make a phone call, which is crazy. Who does that? But um, so you have like all the these four technologies. Field, field people do phone calls. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just joking. But, uh, real, big on, real big on phone calls. Yeah. None of us ever understood why they were doing all these phone calls. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe that's something like that's part of the history of the campaigns. Like politicals have been here forever. That, yeah. That's just what you do, I guess. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know. I'm just. No, that's that's it. That's what yeah. they're coming yeah, I'm just, I just watch American President. That's all I know. But uh, and Western. But um, but um, but yeah. So 
did you work on these these different medias? Uh, mediums? Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, that charts all is a uh, that project is one that I worked on pretty heavily. Right. It was one of those experiments we wanted to do. Okay. So we knew from years and years of data that psychologically there was an impact on people if you had them fill out a card that said when and where and how they were going to vote. Okay. How and like I'm going to you know early vote or I'm going to get in my car and drive down or whatever, not the who you're voting for. Mm -hmm. That you conditioned them to actually do it. Yeah. It was just sort of like they visualize themselves voting. We always talk about it like you are a voter. You're never a potential voter. Like oh. you, we talk in the very positive affirmative. Like you're a voter. We know you're a voter. You know, we know you're going to vote. Let's get your friend to vote. Right. Right. Like that's you never like tell that person we don't think you're going to vote, even if we don't think you're going to vote. Right. So could we do that same kind of fill out this commitment card online? Would that work? With one of the questions we had was, is the impact that it has partially because you've made this commitment to a actual human being in the flesh. Uh -huh. Like you handed someone a card at an event or does just doing this process online trigger the same stuff? And we didn't, you know, we didn't put a bunch of psychologists in the field to find out, but it seems like from what we know that it actually worked online too. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, the, and like you said, the show notes will have the actual chart, but uh -huh. basically we had this thing where you fill out like when you're going to vote and where, and then we just hit submit, and we immediately send you a thank you email. Mm -hmm. And that's what it gets the whole process flowing. Uh, this was actually done by a really cool system called Airwolf, oh. which was basically, um, as I called it, nerds in SQL. So it was a bunch of data analysts writing like custom SQL commands that would figure out when to send emails. Oh, wow. And um, it was this, like very targeted email system. And the cool thing about it was it would figure out who to send the email from based on the closest actual person to you in our organization. Oh. So it would find like the closest volunteer leader to where you lived and have the email come from them. Dude, that's, so that that's you just could start a conversation. Right just, Isn't it? That's just style really cool. right? I just like, oh man. <laughs> well, it got conversations going. Oh, yeah. So if you hit reply, you weren't coming to a massive inbox at HQ that had to be read by a couple hundred volunteers. Mm -hmm. You were getting to somebody who like actually wanted to come have you come out to the office and get right. to know them. Yeah, that, 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 really well. yeah, that, that just short circuits. So if there's a problem, they would go to HQ, right. and then you, the HQ would just like pick up the phone or like look it up, and right. So yeah, so it's pretty just smart. Have it come from that person. Yeah. In this case, when we did all the the final stuff at the end with voting, the sender for almost all of this was the first lady because she's super popular. People like her uh -huh. for obvious reasons. She's rad. Uh -huh. So you get this email from the first lady thanking you for submitting your plan, uh -huh. and then we send you an email reminder the night before. Hey, you said you're going to vote tomorrow. Just want to make sure that you have the map, how to get there. Mm -hmm. None of this was ever like, or, you know, make sure you vote. It was all like, we know you're voting. We got you. We just want to make sure you have all the stuff you need to vote. Uh -huh. And so in every state has different requirements on photo ID and all that. So this email was like, this is what you got to bring in your state. This is where you're going. Which well, would already be in a database already because you would have that. And you just right. ping up. Okay. Yeah. So that was all being pulled from the, the central API we built for voter data. Uh-huh. And then the two hours before you're actually supposed to go to the polls, you get a last one that's from the president. Like, mm -hmm. I know you're about to go vote. I just want to say thank you for doing it. You know, it's like really classy thing. And then after you were supposed to vote, you get a follow up that's like, hey, we just want to make sure you actually went and voted. Mm -hmm. Click here to let us know. If you didn't click here to let us know, we were going to keep picking you about every hour. Mm -hmm. 
And so you really wanted to let us know, right? And, and how would you ping people? Like email? Another email. You just keep email. emailing them over and over. So, so you'd email them every hour? Something like that. Okay. Maybe it was two hours. Okay. Um, okay. It was fairly rapid because okay. most of this is happening on election day. So we right, don't have right. a lot of time. You have no, you have no time to lose, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we had six weeks of early voting. We were right. testing all this stuff in, but half the votes in the country were cast on a single day. Uh-huh. So, um, so then that kicked into this whole like social system with Facebook open graph actions and asking your friends to vote on Facebook. And then we do text messages that remind you where your polling place is while you're driving there. And you can text back and say, that's not where I'm supposed to vote. Give me somebody else. Or your polling place moved because there was a fire last week in a library. Mm-hmm. And we'd send you that while you're driving there. And then, the, like as you mentioned, the phone call, we'd actually have um, a volunteer in your area call you and ask if you needed a ride and could get you a ride if you didn't have one. His whole system of like, we get so used to thinking about HTML, CSS, JavaScript is our medium. Mm-hmm. And then there's you know, people that do social and there's people that do development and whatever. Like, you got to break that down. Like, for one, you don't want to over communicate with people. And you don't want to duplicate efforts across these channels because people get annoyed. Right. You want it to feel like there's one big flow that is everything you're doing. Um, it's it's fantastic. Like there was a really great podcast I listened to a few weeks ago called in, it's in beta with Gina Trapani, mm-hmm. Kevin Purdy. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. They did a thing talking about notifications and this idea of like sort of heads up notifications where you don't actually need to do anything, mm-hmm. just a reminder, versus ones you need to interact with. And that the best apps, the ones you like the most, are the ones that give you notifications right when you want them and never when you don't. Yeah. And like trying to figure this system out. Interesting, but uh, it, we did really well. I mean, we saw a, a really high number of people that did this commit to vote plan actually showed up and voted, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the really cool things about working on in an election with data is like you actually get the report back about a month later of everyone who voted in the country. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see did that person that we were tracking and trying to get actually show up and vote or not? Oh, wow. Like you're not doing sampling, you're getting like one to one data. Oh, nice. And so you actually know like we were this much successful. Um, it's interesting. Like, you don't normally get to do that, right? You're normally doing samples, and here's some. I, I'm fairly certain that we reached eighty percent of who we meant to. And it's like, no, we actually reached this many people. Oh wow! Yeah. So, it's so with the billion dollar question is like, how successful was this? Can you say? I mean, we uh, we won. <laughs> well, there you go. So there's that. There's that a binary. There's a binary answer. Yes. That's We're it. Right. That system, the the plan to vote, commit to vote. There, there were two different pieces there. Commit the vote was step one, and plan the vote was when we rolled out a little bit later, where you actually put down the date and time. Mm-hmm. Um, that system, we, I can't remember how many people it was. I'm totally blanking on the number. It was something like, it was a really high, over 50% number of the people that we reached out to on this system actually showed up and voted. Um, it was even higher the people that filled out the form. Almost everyone who filled the form out showed up and voted. But just the people we actually targeted was over half. The the really cool story I actually can remember the numbers on for all of this stuff is one of the things that we did was at the end of all this, you would actually go and post a Facebook open graph action that said I voted. And we did that for the whole early vote six weeks period we had. Those open graph actions, I believe, were the most successful Facebook had had at that point, period. Oh wow. Um, they were definitely up in the top. We did somewhere around a million 
of those custom actions, I voted actions, mm-hmm. and that generated 1.2 million return visits to the website from them. Oh, wow. So for every person that did it, we got actually one and a quarter people coming and checking us out. Nice. And that's an unheard of click-through rate on anything on Facebook. Because this is the same system like Spotify uses that you just ignore what your friend's listening to. Right. Right. So it's kind of cool that we got that high with it. And then the, the other big social targeting thing that we did, my friend Adam Stalker ran this program, was Facebook rolled out these app notifications right before elect, the election. And anything they rolled out, we were going to at least try. Mm-hmm. So just put a little notice up in your drop down of your alerts. So we had these, this group of people, we had 7 million people that had voted for us in 08, we felt like they would probably vote for us again if someone got in touch with them and sort of pushed them over the line, right? Like they're on the edge of whether they're gonna vote for us or not. But we don't have a phone number or an address for them. But we do know with a pretty decent amount of certainty that they are friends with someone that we have connected to our Facebook app. So we can reach the friend and have the friend reach out to them. So we did this, we sent out 7 million notices on election day and it was like, Christopher, Sam hasn't voted, mm-hmm. and she's in Ohio. Go call Sam. Right. Like, this is very targeted, like, your name and that person's name and their picture. And, like, it's not like, go tell your friends to vote. It's like, go tell Sam to vote. Right. And the, when the, it was all over with, five million people out of that group actually showed up and voted for us. Nice. Or voted registered to our party. We have no idea who they voted for. Right. But we have a fairly good assumption they voted for us. Right. And so um, w- would you tell, like, hey, Hey Chris, you're Sam. Would you give me Sam's phone number, or would I know it? Because I, because you would assume I would know it. We would assume you would know how to get in touch with her because we wouldn't have asked you if you weren't the most proximate person to her we had. Okay. So part of our whole system was figuring out who the closest friends to you oh. were, and we would oh. do that through a variety of methods, including how many people you were tagged with in photos. Oh man, that is so smart. Wow, I'm so blown away right now. Physically stand there and be tagged, you know, to be in the photo with them. Well, man. And like that was one of those like light bulb moments when someone came up with that. When it was like, well, yeah, obviously that's how you figure out who they're actually close to. They're standing in the room with them. <laughs> it seemed obvious once we thought of it, but when we thought of it, it was this like major thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to question who I take pictures with from now on. <laughs> you you have to go to your Facebook settings, turn on on the privacy settings, and make sure you have to approve all your tags. Otherwise, it's going to come back and haunt you. Yeah. If you want to know every photo you're in. <laughs> uh, so. Oh man, that's awesome. We can't say for certain those people voted because they got reached out to through that system. Yeah, there's you know, there's not a ton of certainty there. We yeah. know five million of them voted for us out of that group that we were going after, mm. and we know that we won the popular vote by four million. Right. So, awesome. you know that that may or may not be where that four million came from, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a nice story to tell that makes Adam Stalker look really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but we know we we definitely feel like there's a. a sizable number of that group that voted because the, their friend got them to go do it. Nice. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, that is cool. That is, <laughs> there's no pretty cool about it. That is cool. Um, uh, so just, just the, just, I just want to finish talking about the plan to vote plan. Yeah. Like, so we had CMS technologies, right? Not technology, but like texting and SMS. Your, uh, SMS, sorry. Yeah. Uh, polling place Too many lookup. acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> so polling place lookup and alerts about changes and something like that. That would just yeah. be like, Hey, you sign up for a vote. We know where you're going to vote, where you, where you need to go. Yep. Uh, here's, would it just send you a text or would you prompt a text? 
from the you would have had to have opted into our texting okay. list. All right. uh, you can't text people without oh, yeah. their consent legally. Right. Okay. Um, especially when you're a campaign being overseen by the FEC, yeah. they don't they don't like those kind of things, and okay. they shouldn't because yeah. people should not be spammed. Yes. Um, so if you were if we had your phone number and you had opted into our SMS list, which was pretty large, right? Then. And we actually prompted you as part of the follow-up system. Mm -hmm. Like, if you want to get a text message reminding you where to go vote, click here to give us your number. Um, we would send you, like, this is the place that you looked up that you asked for a reminder about. If this is not where you need to vote, you know, text us back. And we actually had a system that our vendor, uh, Mobile Commons, built that was you could interact with and give it the information and get your polling place back. So you have to be really careful with how you word all that stuff, too, because if you give someone the wrong information and you give it to them definitively, it's voter fraud. Right. Okay. So it was always just like, we think you should vote here. Contact <laughs> your secretary of state to make sure. Yeah. Because um, we, we were getting data from the secretaries of state, but we couldn't know that it was up to date because yeah. voting in this country is insane. That's no. all I'm saying. As a, as a geek who like, likes ordered systems and Python and like, you know, indented white space. Yeah. Seeing the mess that is voting in this country, it was mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 crazy. Um, yeah. And so with, uh, and then the the fourth piece of the technology was the phone, and and so you just have on your slide, just do you need a ride? And so yeah, would you just prompt people to call, or like how how, how does that work? You, you would get put on our call list. Okay. So we had we had these call tools. We had a, one that was online, one that was offline for if you came into an office and. But it wasn't offline. It wasn't. It wasn't the web one. It was you know tied to the internet, obviously. Okay. And it would tell all of our volunteers like who to call and yeah. then what script to read them. So one of the scripts was, "Do you need a ride to the polls on election day?" Okay. And you would get put into this into that universe of people to call if you had signed up that you were going to go vote. Oh, gotcha. So, so we're like doing carpooling, basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. So like, so you would check to see if you would, like need a ride or something like that, and they would. Yeah. Help you out. Is that right? Yeah, or whatever else you might need. If you wanted to come in and volunteer, or you wanted to donate money, or you weren't sure if your ID was valid, or whatever it might be, like the phone call was like sort of like, here's a human being you can talk to now to make sure you're ready to go. Especially when we had so many states that implemented photo ID in this election, and those laws were really confusing. Um, They were intended to be, but. Well, it's just, I mean, that's just awesome. Thanks for giving us this uh, pure peek into the, the campaign and everything like that, but uh, just change things up just a little bit. Um, yeah. What are you focusing on right now? Um, I, I read somewhere that you're working on an incubator. Yeah, so Monday starts the Gig Tank for 2013. Gig Tank is an incubator here in Chattanooga that is centered around the gigabit internet system we have here. We were the first one in the country to go full gigabit and totally awesome stuff. We're uh, looking at a class of, I think it's eight this year. I think we're still trying to decide if it's going to be nine. You know, it's only the last three days. But bringing these these starting companies and help them get off the ground, it's a focus on what can we do service-wise and product-wise when you have a ubiquitous high-speed internet connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it looks to be like a lot of fun. I mean, get to be the basically the big nerd to advise all these companies, like how do you do scale and how do you reach out to people? That kind of stuff. So, I'm really, I'm super excited about it. Cool. I really like to like last year was the first year, and I, this was when I was in Chicago. I didn't get to participate, but it was a contest. Like there was a winner at the end, and they got money 
investment, whatever. This year, like everyone's getting money, yeah. and we want all of you to win. Right. There is no winner. It's just like a summer to learn how to do this and enough money to get off the ground. Nice. And like, can we actually make eight winners instead of one? And I think that's a really cool idea. And yeah. I don't, I don't know of any incubator that's doing it that way. Yeah, that's really pretty cool. cool. Yeah, like a lot of them are like uh, we we whittled down to one or two winners and right. And then you know, yay! So um, cool. Yeah. So at the end of the summer, they'll they'll all pitch to a bunch of VCs, and then we're hoping they all get funded. Right. So that's a that's a pretty cool way to run it. Oh yeah, pretty cool. That's awesome. And so that starts Monday. Monday. Oh, okay. The eleventh, right? If I got the date right, uh, maybe not. Thirteenth. Thirteenth. Yes. That sounds right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Monday the thirteenth. Yeah. Yes. And then, um, and then also, the, are you working on? Uh, you're a big open source fan, of course. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, are you working on open sourcing some or most or all the technologies from the campaign? Because I read somewhere in the article that yeah. uh, they were just got dust ball, dust ball uh, all the technologies or something like that after the campaign or something like that. And yeah, the article was really unfortunate in that I didn't say a lot of the things that were in that article. <laughs> uh, those plans haven't actually been made yet. Okay. So in the immediate aftermath of the campaign, when everyone outside really wanted us to open source everything, we wanted to sleep. Yes. That and that's how it goes. Yeah. So that was one of them. And then we went, you know, taking vacations, going to the inaugural, all mm-hmm. those kind of things. Mm-hmm. The conversations are starting to really happen around what's going to happen with all the, the technology from the campaign. Okay. A lot of it is really useless to anyone who wasn't the Obama campaign. Right. It was tied to a specific set of vendors or it wasn't built to last more than a week in some cases. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but some of this stuff, I think, actually could be useful in the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DNC is already open sourced our voter registration stuff, which is really cool. Yeah. So there's like a one-click Heroku install if you want to run your own register-to-vote website. Oh, crazy. It's built off that. Mm-hmm. Uh, really cool. And I think you'll see more of that kind of stuff that we did, voter-centric especially, that comes out uh, over time. There's some more I know about that I can't talk about right now. Okay. But there's definitely plans in motion. Things are actively being discussed. Mm-hmm. I think a year from now, you'll see a lot more out there than you do right now. Okay. And it's one of those things, too, that the, the campaign professionals run in two-year cycles so right now is their downtime right so you know okay. it is what it is so if we were to like be notified when they release things open source we would just follow dnc github yeah dnc github will have it for sure mm. um you can follow barack obama on twitter i'm sure they'll talk about it but okay. the dnc github is the best place to look for it okay because even if even if it doesn't come out from the DNC, the DNC will at least post a notice that it's coming out there. Okay, cool. Because the DNC and the campaign are completely legally separate. There's, you don't want to know all the laws involved in that stuff. But no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the campaign open source stuff. I've been working on a, a project I'm pretty stoked about called Stevenson CMS. That's a web interface for editing Jekyll websites. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Oh man. Everybody fell in love with Jekyll at the campaign, and yeah. we all want to use it with our clients now, but our clients can't figure out how to use it. You're right, exactly. Uh, so uh, yeah. a group of us from the front-end team are putting together this Django-built system, actually, that you log in with GitHub, you pick out your repo, pick what branch you want to go on, and then you get a CMS, and it does either pull requests or live merges back to your GitHub repo. Mm-hmm. So if you're using GitHub pages for your hosting, like this can just right. be your editor, and you go back and forth. Oh, man. Uh, Okay. I actually, t- this morning, got it editing posts successfully. I'm oh, most nice. stoked. 
So yeah, that's on my GitHub account, oh. githubcom slash dryan, and you can follow it there. Oh. And then there's another system that I'm building in the same vein that's for code deploy. So that when you push to GitHub, it will automatically push your static website to S3 or whatever FTP server you want. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So if you don't want to do GitHub pages for your hosting, mm -hmm. you can still use Stevenson, push it to GitHub, then the GitHub hooks will have it push out somewhere else. Nice. So that one's going to be open source and then a paid service. If you don't want to host it yourself, you can pay a fee to have it run on your repository. So uh, those are pretty cool. I'm pretty yeah. excited about those. Yeah. We actually did one. I did one at the campaign that didn't come out from the campaign, quote unquote, but the CSS grid that we use for responsive design called the smart grid mm -hmm. is open source. And that's been fully rewritten since the campaign as uh, took all the lessons we learned from how what did and didn't work from that. That's up on GitHub. That's a pretty cool one people seem to like. So that's CSS smart grid, is that right? Or is that yeah. It? Okay. So it's a fully responsive mobile first JavaScript free um, CSS grid that is uh, fully responsive. So it's flexible widths up to a certain point and then goes up. And it's built in less, uh -huh. so you can tweak it if you want to do wider width or narrower, different column sizes, whatever. You just change some variables and run with it. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I like it a lot. You can also, because I'm a huge fan of semantic markup, you can just use it as less mix-ins and apply all those rules to your own markup so that you're not adding classes to your page, which is my favorite way to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a whole, I have a whole list of stuff on GitHub, but those are the big ones that I think people like. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Right, so definitely um, github.com slash um, dryan. That's it. And then how can you tell us how people can find you on other places on the web, like social media and Twitter? Pretty much stuff. everywhere it's dryan. So yeah. it's, it's dryan.com, uh, at dryan on Twitter. Facebook is not at DRyan, unfortunately. I, I need to talk to some friends over there. Um, I probably wouldn't follow me on Facebook. I'm really boring on there. Twitter, I'm pretty fun on. Uh, my family is on Facebook, so I have to be cool. You know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, my mom doesn't understand Twitter, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, Instagram's DRyan. Um, if you go to DRyan.com, you can find all my, all my stuff. And I write blog posts once a decade yeah. on there, yeah. about once a year. I'm trying to write some more on there. And yeah. As I'm, I'm actually writing a book right now on human first web design. Hmm. I'll be kicking out some of that stuff as blog posts as it goes, just to get some feedback. So, okay, it's a good place to find it. And that's a Jekyll website too, because I love Jekyll. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Awesome. My pleasure. Cool. And thanks to Sam for being co-host today. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. So, thanks, Sam. Thanks. It was great to meet you. Or, internet meet you. It's real. It's real. The, endor okay. the endorphins are real. We've met. <laughs> cool. Uh, thanks to Chris from Canada for pushing the buttons that make the podcast go. Uh, you can follow uh, Chris from Canada on Twitter at iChris on your iDevice of choice. Uh, thanks to you listeners uh, for listening. Uh, if you could, just rate us up on iTunes and uh, leave a review if you want. Uh, in addition, um, we went, uh, we, the show was on Twitter at uh, NBSB uh, NSB uh, I just messed that one up. I'm gonna, we'll fix it and edit, whatever. Okay, and uh, and our th many thanks to Daniel Ryan for joining us on uh, Breaking Space. <laughs>